Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Last week, we were aboard the flagship of the Royal Navy, HMS Queen Elizabeth, in New York Harbor for the Fifth Atlantic Future Forum, an annual gathering of thought leaders from both sides of the Atlantic. While aboard, we met with Juliet Wilcox, Britain's cybersecurity ambassador with the Department for International Trade. She has more than three decades of government, diplomatic, and industry experience, including as chief executive of His Majesty's Government's Communications Center. She's also fluent in Mandarin Chinese. She took on her current post in February to help boast UK cyber exports and collaboration with allies and partners worldwide. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, Fortress Information Security. Sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Air and Space Force Association's Air Space Cyber Conference and Trade Show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS, which also is sponsoring our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting next week. Here's our conversation with Ambassador Wilcox. Juliet, thank you so very much for joining us. I've never uh, interviewed a cyber ambassador uh, for trade before. Thank you very much. It's very good to be speaking to you. Um, indeed, uh, a pleasure. So what is the genesis of your job? Because we're increasingly finding, right, that nations have defense attaches. Now increasingly we're finding cyber attaches. The Czech uh, cyber attache in Washington was one of the first I met to be holding that billet. And there is an increasing sense uh, about the importance of having uh, diplomats engaged in the cyberspace because it's so important to national security. What, what was the genesis of, of the job and why was it created? Thank you. Well, this job manifests itself in different ways for different countries. Um, and this particular role is a cyber security ambassador for trade, for international trade, and it was really created to promote exports, but at a particular moment in time. So about eight or so years ago when we first uh, put out a cyber security uh, strategy and the NCSC was, uh, was uh, first started, I think people looked at it uh, as sort of a pioneer in the way that it did national level cyber, cyber security. And actually many governments across the world rather wanted to have one of their own and would ask of the UK, you know, how could they create this kind of national level infrastructure, the ability to have monitoring and, and response at a, at a national level? How did, could they have an NCSC of their own? Now, clearly the UK creates that with industry. Industry are fundamental. And so really our, the role was created to help prom promote and, and support mainly the primes, but big-scale, national infrastructure-level um, cybersecurity uh, strategies and implementation and infrastructure, but in a way that governments could uh, be assured that they were getting the quality and that they could work with trusted companies. So, And for that, from that perspective, you need a government-to-government -government interface. You need somebody that can... Uh, talk to foreign governments, can reflect back on the things that we've learned and understood, can explain how it all fits together, because it is a jigsaw, it's not just one thing, and can then offer support to the, to the and the safe space, I suppose, for the commercial and technical organisation uh, conversations to take place. So that was the genesis um, many years ago, and of course over the last few years it has, has changed, it's moved on and it now incorporates quite a few other things. Um, and when you said NCSE, that's the National Cybersecurity Center. Uh, and uh, certainly both on both sides of the Atlantic, there's a, a dramatically increased focus on, on cybersecurity. The Biden administration has been working that uh, very hard. 
but that's also driven by an evolving threat picture. So, and, and the demands of you know Britain's allies and partners around the world that you're working to support. Uh, Mark Goldsack, uh, your boss, has been talking about the importance and growing cyber portfolio over the course of his tenure over the last six years. Um, what's what's the global threat picture that's in turn driving what it is that Britain's allies and partners want from it? I think what people are seeing from cyber uh, as a threat is, first of all, that it cuts across international borders. Um, you can't really tackle cyber threats on your own. So the ability to understand that globally, to understand who are the actors, what are their um, targets. Actually, I think countries as a whole, the biggest threat they're f facing at the moment seems still to be things like ransomware, the things that really tackle and, and sort of create problems for your national infrastructure on so many levels, whether it's something that's critical uh, or something that actually is just incidentally affected. So there, there are things like that, but also I think as you, as you see the digitization of so many of our national assets, uh, then they also become vulnerable as a result of that. And the idea that you can uh, anymore have defence assets or indeed energy, uh, transport, it doesn't really matter what sector, without taking into account the cyber security wrapper and then the possibilities for that to also be under threat. That's what everybody is seeing. Um, it runs through everything. So that ability to monitor and understand the threats that are coming in and, and, and then to be able to create the resilience to, to either to guard against it or to recover quickly from it, um, that's a universal thing across the world now. And the ability to, to build your infrastructure to, to help support your sort of national resilience picture is something that we're all learning from each other. And I think the UK happened to start that you know, earlier than most, and that's what people are asking for. Um, uh, UK has always been one of the world's leading uh, cyber uh, nations uh, in in theorizing whether for intelligence uses we're not going to get to that uh, in part because of the intimate partnership between the United States and the and the United Kingdom and the Five Eyes partnership on that. But talk to us a little bit about what is it that um, the nations that you talk to, what is it they most want from the UK? Because you mentioned everything from big national level infrastructure projects all the way down to you know, threat warning and what have you. Walk us through the entire portfolio of things that, uh, which, which, which I suspect is a very long and complicated list, but how would you break that down uh, to sort of, you know, put it in understandable terms about this, the scope of the work um, that you guys are doing, given that the UK has from some of the smallest to some of the biggest cyber companies on the planet? Yeah. So, well, it is a jigsaw, and there is a, uh, there is actually a taxonomy of about a dozen things that would feature as cyber security products, but it ranges from um, the, the kind of threat monitoring, incident response that you would understand, uh, control levels, industrial control systems, but also think about the skills that underpin all of this and the awareness that people, this is a very people relevant as well. And you can and you can sort of move all of that through that national level of infrastructure and monitoring. You can look at it down to um, uh, the kind of visualization of the threats and how you analyze it as well. So you can break it down into some component parts and countries um, sort of look at what they've already got most people have got something now and they want to and, and they'll look at which elements of the jigsaws they may not have got yet and they will ask us for example how do I build a security operations center or how do we create an academy of excellence for cyber skills uh, not so many governments now I think have got nothing and want to start from scratch 
but they are beginning to understand the pieces that need to go together to, to, to create that sort of whole resilient society. And the UK does have areas of expertise in all of these areas. So, for example, this week we've been looking at maritime cybersecurity. How is it that you're going to think about autonomous uh, ships in the future and and automated ports of which there are some around the world already and you know who is the expert and trying to put together a cybersecurity package for that and they won't necessarily be the same as somebody that might protect you know healthcare machinery um, so yeah I think there is a there is a way of sort of defining the different elements of cybersecurity and each country is looking at its own economy its own requirements whether it wants it for defence purposes or civilian purposes and then looking to see who has some of the expertise in that. Um, uh, you uh, raised the question that it's not just about the technology necessarily, right? It's also about uh, the people power that goes behind that. The United States is finding that uh, every, every time we say that there are half a million available cyber jobs, we fall behind and, and don't make that number and the number then grows to 800 and then to 1 million and, and by some accounts we're a million and a half cyber jobs short. Uh, driving some to discuss regularly, we need a completely different way of training that cyber workforce. What are some of the cutting edge ideas, uh, you know, from a UK perspective on how you change that curriculum to be able to build the skills at the rate of relevance as opposed to saying, well, we're going to raise cyber people the way we've been raising them, which means we will always be short of cyber skills. Right. So you're right. Um so I think you have to look at it in two ways. One is to make sure that you've got enough people who are interested in taking up that career path. And we've worked really hard over the last few years to deep, dig deeply into schools at the very earliest level, both to encourage people to, to sort of take up and be interested in, in the cyber skills, but also to encourage that broader diversity aspect because you know, making sure that more girls learn um, STEM subjects, making sure you think about the neurodiversity elements of this, which is attracting people into careers and, and sort of uh, educational passages they would perhaps never have thought of. So one is about the numbers. The second thing is thinking about imaginatively, where are people later on in their career where they might actually be attracted to think about what they might do next slightly differently because not all of the skills you need in a cyber security environment are deep deep technical now you do need to be able to understand behavioral science you need to be able to understand threat actors you need to be able to think about awareness and people elements of this or organizational aspects how do you explain things to the board so there there are some soft skills in there as well as some technical skills so bringing in that range then I think you need to think about how and where is all of this taught because going to university is still a great way to get that deep understanding but there are other routes too so the ability to do it as apprenticeships working while you're learning the ability to do it as a conversion the ability to think about it in a modular form um, the ability to look at it both as a user which is one level of expertise uh, a leader which is again the ability to think differently about how you deploy others with expertise and then that middle layer of the engineer and the deep technical skills and I, and I think uh, mixing as well that ability to combine industrial experience with education, with application in the government sort of area, which is sometimes where the most innovative usages are, occur. You know, that's how we have to think about it differently, and we are starting to do that. But as you say, skills are short supply everywhere. We're, it's, it's a global issue. So I think the other thing you can do is how do you harness technology to mean that you don't need as many people? As we, as we think we do. That still means we'll be short probably, but ultimately some of the things that we're thinking of using, whether it's artificial intelligence or some of the machine learning tools, 
they ought to be there to make sure that the people aspect can be focused on the things it really needs to do. Uh, and, and clarify for the audience, because some people will be asking, you know, when you say modular approach, what does that modular approach mean? Because, by the way, I found it fascinating for later life and, and uh, you know, sort of explaining that it, everybody does not have to be an expert coder, uh, for example, at the highest technical level. What do you mean by that modular approach to how you can use people? Um, so I think you can, so people can be taught or can can learn in, in sort of at different moments in their lives and having learned previously different things first. So if you can understand and you, if you understand about behavior and human behavior and you apply that into how humans would think about as an attacker, if you were, for example, uh, thinking about how you would um, sort of approach a, a target, that's also relevant to how you would defend it. Um, you can think about some of the difficult things about cyber are explaining it to the people who really need to use it effectively to make decisions. And sometimes the people who are the, the deep technical coding engineers may not be the ones that can translate that into something that um, uh, is usable in the boardroom. Uh, equally, the people who are the sort of deeply technical um, uh, engineers need to be the ones whose who's learning develops over time to keep up with um, the changes in technology as well and the different applications that are, are required. So, so the ability to translate and use and think differently can also be built on a life of human experience uh, as well as, as starting from sort of the very earliest stages. Uh, I, I think that's uh, particularly interesting, the point you're making, right, to so use the corporate example. But actually, in the military, it's it's much the same thing, where you know senior military leaders know the domains of warfare, but sometimes have a, a difficulty understanding some of the cyber people and how they're explaining it to try to make it very very relevant and and somewhat more understandable. I mean, there's that bad joke about what's the difference between a a cyber introvert and a cyber extrovert. The cyber extrovert looks at your shoes as opposed to their own shoes. I'm sorry, I'm not busting on anybody in the cyber community. It was just an observation made by uh, some. What's the future of the threat? So, uh, you know, part of it was a prescience by the United Kingdom to say, hey, we need to set this capability up and be serious as a nation in terms of protecting ourselves. As you look forward to the threats, where is the threat going that will in turn then drive the defenses, which then drives the conversations you're going to be having, say, five, seven, ten years from now, yeah. or, or your successors? So, whether, so I don't know that the nature of the threat um, in, or the intent of the threat will change that much. It's always going to be about the ability to get hold of data which helps give you an advantage um, or prevent others using the data that they have. And that really is what the threat's uh, about. Um, the, but I think that the thing that will be different is that that data will be part of everything that we do. So I'm particularly interested in making sure that um, we're looking at all sectors of society uh, whether it's finance or healthcare or energy or transport and helping them to recognize that they will have inbuilt into them risk based on the fact that they need data in order to function. And that will be true also in our defense world. I mean, the conference we're at here talks very much about the future of, of, of use of technology in order to enhance technical and military capability, but that in intrinsically brings with it risk and future warfare will all be about the speed at which you can move your data around and then assess it and then act on the basis of that. 
that depends on where you get the data from and how you transport it. But all of that will need a security wrapper because it is very, very vulnerable. And, and as soon as you've lost it to your adversary, then you've lost that advantage. So I think the, the, the future is really the fact that so much of what we do in society or in a conflict zone is going to re require us to protect our and use effectively our data. And you can really close that data down and protect it, but then you can't use it. So you're going to have to have an element of risk somehow. And it's where you allow that risk to manifest itself and where you protect it. Um, that's going to be the things that people will have to make some judgments on. And, and the last question is, um, just like every government tries to strike a balance on what weapon it can export, how do you draw the line between what the cyber capabilities are that you can export? Mm. Because the line between that which is defensive and offensive is now, I think, almost irrelevant, uh, ultimately. Where do some of those lines lie, and what's the process that helps you go go through a discipline process to decide what you export, what you don't, um, ultimately, whether it's on the skills side of things or on the technical side? Uh, so it's a good question because there's really almost everything in cyber and cybersecurity has a dual use. So it in the UK, certainly, it almost always comes up against what we'd have as our export control system regime. But that's a pretty tried and tested way of analysing how you look at your um, risks there. So it will go through its sets of criteria, whether whether the exporting of this would impact national security, whether it would give an advantage to an adversary, whether it would undermine a capability. So they will look at that. The difficulty with cyber sometimes is you can't see it very well. It's, it's, a, it's, it's software, it's quite difficult to visualise. So you need experts to understand what it is that that software is designed to do. Um, I think we've got good experts who do do that for us, but they have to keep up. They have to be able to understand what the future sort of creations are. And we will always, you know, look at those sort of criteria. We'll look at the potential abuses of our cyber technology as well. So again, we are really alive to the human rights uh, aspect of, of uh, misuse as well. But these are quite clearly sort of set out criteria applied to the cyber world. Um, but again, it's, you've got to keep up with it and, and it does change a great deal. That doesn't, but all of that said is that we, we need to be able to export our, our capabilities too. And we want to when we've got um, allies and partners who we want to make sure are as capable as we are in the defence um, sector, certainly. And in some cases, actually, you know, the safer all countries are, the more they're able to protect data which will be potentially our data passing through their uh, systems you know we want them we want all of the countries to be able to basically protect financial data health data we, we we're not shy about saying that we want that to happen we just want to make sure that we're careful about other potential uses and that we make sure that they are not abused and, and one last uh, question um, one of the big focuses in the United States is on hardware and software origin uh, and, you know, a bill of origin and materials, right? I mean, everybody in this ecosystem uh, recognizes that they may have problematic code uh, and, and that there's, you know, 
but by the time it makes to it to a prime contractor, you think it's from the prime contractor, but the chips actually might be Chinese chips and vulnerability. Mm-hmm. What are some of the approaches? Um, you know, I know that that's not your specific purview, mm-hmm. but but what are some of the approaches from a UK perspective? Because obviously, this is sort of a, a major initiative on the part of the United States to figure out like where everything came from. And hey, if you went to an open source library, you might actually have some Chinese malware installed or Russian uh, coding, uh, problematic coding. From, from from your standpoint, what, what's the approach the UK is taking to make sure that that which you are not just using yourself, but then exporting to others, mm. doesn't actually contain something problematic at the end of the day? Uh, well, it's a good question. And while it's not my area of expertise exactly, I think that problem of understanding your supply chain is critical. Um, and I don't think it's a very easy thing to do. I do think that there will be ways of doing it in future. Again, I won't come up with a technical solution now, but the ability to test that software will become probably easier as we as we improve our ability to use sort of quantum uh, computing to, to sort of look quickly uh, uh, and assess. And same is probably true of, of AI and other techniques that you might be able to apply to software. Um, but I think we will all feel find that that is an imperative to be able to understand the whole of your so, your software and hardware supply chain. And actually, if you're worried about it, then the incentives governments have to try to create trusted supply chains as well. Um, and you know, we talk a lot about where there are single points of failure or risks. Um, governments do need to try to understand where those are and offer alternatives, whether that's through allies who can you know create that tr- that chain of trust. Um, or whether it's through being able to test what is there f- from wherever you buy it to understand exactly what's in it. But I don't think it's an easy problem to overcome. Uh, we will have to work on it, but not on our own, I think, with others. And an industry will be part of that. I mean, they will also want to make sure that their products are trusted as well. Um, vulnerabilities now are all about where things haven't been jammed together properly. Um, we'll need to try to work on making sure that that is reduced as a risk in the future. Julia, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much.